Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity for the brothers and sisters uh, in in, uh, this class to to gather around the amazing uh, thing we call your word that you've called your word and that says that heavens and the, the heavens and the earth will pass away but your word will live forever it will stand it's firmly secure and so we're going to just kind of place aside all of our all of our things we got going here for the next 60 minutes all the stresses of the holidays perhaps or maybe it's stress of work or relationships family and we're going to place that aside and we're going to look at what you have for us today uh, for the body of Christ, for us personally, so we can glorify you, we can honor you with our lives in a greater capacity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Guys, it's so good to see you. It's so great to to uh, come to you today. It is a uh, beautiful day to open up God's Word, um, and, it's, and I hope you guys are diligent and vigilant and have some stamina today because we are going to kick back off, jump back into the events at the temple you remember that scene uh, in the temple as Peter heals a lame man and preaches to the Jewish crowd gathered around. Uh, if you guys remember, all the Pentecost happenings have already happened. Peter preached his first sermon, and 3,000 people came and repented and were baptized. And now we're on the move. We're in another scene where a man was healed. He was 40 years lame, could not walk, and boom, here he is, walking, standing, So you look at the very end of chapter 3. If you guys want to go to chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, we remember Peter's call to the Jewish crowd. Uh, Can I call upon somebody to read verses 25 and 26 really loud so all you can hear, uh, so my microphone can pick you up. Go ahead. Um, You're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God... Having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So, yes, thank you. So this is just a little backtracking a little bit as we ended last week. We note that Peter, uh, his sermon, his sermon's content is very specifically, I'm going to use a word, eschatological, uh, esch- I can't even say it now, eschatological <laughs> I just butchered it. Uh, it's the study of end times. I've used it a, uh, a couple of times. It's come out of my mouth, but I thought to myself last week, eschatology, there I could say that word, uh, but eschatology is a word that maybe not everybody knows what it is. I had somebody comment, what you talking about? And so here's what eschatology is. It's the study of end times. It's the study of what's going to happen in the end. And so I have to define that for you to understand what Peter is talking about. He is not talking about now in that hundred year uh, first century moment. He's talking about 
later. But here's the thing, he's calling the Jewish people to repent and receive their Messiah because of what we know is coming, he thought was imminent. What he thought we know as coming promises, he thought was right then and there. But his call emphasizes the opportunity for the Jewish nation to enter a time of refreshing, it's called in Scripture, a time to enjoy the presence of the Lord. He, he's calling his people, the Jewish people, to enter a time of refreshing and receive the one they murdered. Think about it. Just a few days prior, they murdered him. Can you imagine the strangeness of hearing a sermon that says, hey, we know that you crucified this criminal. You guys put him on a cross, but did you know he's your Messiah? So Peter assumes this, because he knows Scripture. In Joel 2, in Zechariah 12, we talked about that. He's thinking about the fulfillment of that promise God made. And he says, guys, can we all get on the same page, repent and be baptized, and Jesus is coming back? Like, now. So... He says, receive my call. He's not just preaching a sermon. He's calling them to an action. Then the Messiah would return. Then his kingdom would be inaugurated. He, his government would be set up. That would take place now. This is his sermon. So remember, the Old Testament prophets never anticipated or understood something that I want you to take note of. What do you think that is? One thing that the Old Testament prophets never anticipated happening. It's an interesting question. Does anybody have an idea? The Gentiles. Absolutely no idea that was a part of the plan, specifically the church. The church institution, the church uh, rubric, the church, the church thing <laughs> was not a thing to be grasped. It was what the Bible calls a mystery. A mystery? So this is an interesting word, mystery, a mystery in the Bible, meaning the mystery of the church, specifically in this context, the mystery denotes an idea that, that it must be something to be, what, solved. A mystery in the Bible is a component of God's plan that was previously unknown by a group of people but now has been revealed. Am I right? A mystery. That's the definition of a mystery. Well, uh, a solved mystery, that is. Paul himself declared that the apostles were the ones to give the mission to reveal the mystery of the church. The apostles were. Where do I get that? Well, glad you asked. Ephesians <laughs> chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm just going to read it for now. Here it is. It says this, For this reason, I, Paul, Paul says this, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, there it is, 
and the prophets in the spirit. To be specific, I love that. To be specific, that the Gentiles, you and me, are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I made I am made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the workers of his power. Guys, but at this early point, Peter hasn't yet appreciated this mystery. He doesn't even get it. He doesn't much less teach it. He's not teaching this concept to the Jews. Despite Peter's best effort, this generation of Israel were not, they were not to receive the return of the Lord. Interesting. They were under judgment for rejecting their Messiah. Remember I talked about the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit? And this generation was not going to get a second shot. Let me be specific. The nation wasn't going to get a second shot. An individual? Absolutely. An individual Jew in that day could receive their Messiah just like an individual Gentile today. The only difference is they were going to receive the promise of their nation that God made to their nation when you and I received that promise, just like you and me. But we are in view of a national judgment. We are not in a view of a, of a personal judgment. We're in the view of a national judgment that God placed upon the nation of Israel. And those individuals who place their faith in Christ and believe and be baptized and repent would enjoy the promise in a future day in the kingdom like you and me. We're going to watch Peter grow as the gospel, gospel itself is expressed. This is interesting because a lot of people don't see the Peter narrative. They, they don't take time and acts to see the, the inner workings of the mind of Peter. So first, we have to remind ourselves something about what happens. First, it grows among the Jews, that gospel. It grows among the Jews, but soon after, it moves on to the Samaritans, then the Gentiles. And I mean, I was going to write this out, but that's pretty simple, right? Those three sets. And Peter will grow throughout this time, learning to accept that the Messiah came for other people besides the Jews. Praise be to God. Thank you, Jesus, for that. I don't know where we would be without that promise. Finally, notice that Peter's sermon this time does not declare the baptism that was required for this salvation. Did you see that? He doesn't mention getting baptized in this sermon. That's an interesting little nugget. Only their belief in Jesus was required for the nation to receive their Messiah. The whole nation doesn't need to get dunked, in other words. Peter's saying, just as a nation, can't you see that the, the man you blasphemed, the, the man that you murdered is your Messiah? Read Joel, read Zechariah. The whole Old Testament is pointing to this man named Jesus. But they went, no. No. After preaching the sermon to the people, Peter naturally caught the attention of the leaders within the temple. So he's sitting there, 
speaking really loudly, making a scene, I'm sure. Boom, authority. Enters scene. And many of these leaders, guys, were exactly, there's no reason for us to believe anything otherwise. They were the exact same men who persecuted and conspired against Jesus himself. It's only 50 days later. So when they see the commotion in the temple grounds and notice Jesus' disciples at the center of the crowd, they become concerned. Guys, have you ever seen, like, this is an interesting thing. They're right here. Here's all the other people. I want you to put yourself, the reason I'm drawing this strange little pig, looks like a pig face. I want you to put yourself right in the middle. Do you realize, have you ever been this in this spot in, in your community as a believer? Someone is always looking at your back. Your back is always to somebody. It's vulnerable. It's scary. It's emotional. Many Christians don't have the guts to do this. I'm talking to myself. Are you willing to expose your back to the men who crucified Jesus? Steve's about ready to like, like throw up a, a rock fist. I mean, come on. You have to be able to, to withstand this. And I want you guys to put yourself there emotionally. So when they see this commotion, they come into the center they start gathering around Peter and John, and they quickly reacted to what they saw. We need to silence this. We need to put this to, to bed. Somebody please, let's jump finally into the chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Somebody just shout it out. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, where it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Oh, boy. That's a church growth strategy right there. Peter and John were still in mid-sentence when they were interrupted by the temple officials. Three groups of priests are mentioned. But in reality, there were probably about the same number of temple leaders. Take a look at your piece of paper. I laid out for you the, the first century Jewish uh, architecture of the chain of command, if you will, of how they ran the temple. Pretty, pretty uh, I don't know, robust. There's a lot of people involved. You see that? Thousands of people in this temple. It wasn't just a group of a couple men. There is thousands of people running this show, this business. So... Some priests acted the temple in the temple, you would find priests performing different jobs. And some of those priests would act like guards, some of them like temple police. Um, some of them were the captains of the guard. You would bump into somebody with a little more stripes, and he was the boss, you know. And then you got these people named the Sadducees. Who were the Sadducees? Well, they were in charge of the high priests. There was the high priest, there was the Sadducees, there was actually the Sadducees were the ruling council of 24 priests who controlled the temple grounds. So these Sadducees were of the, uh, uh, let's say, the conservative party of the political climate. The Pharisees were the liberals. 
Sadducees is a good way of understanding what the Sadducees believe because they were sad, you see? Uh, a little Christian joke. Uh, they, why were they sad? They did not believe that resurrection. Nate gets the golden star. He, it's exactly right. They did not believe that resurrection is a thing. It's a hoax. It's a joke. So if anybody would talk about such things, whoa, you get ready for this party, this conservative party to come with their picket signs and start saying, you're done. You're done here. So this Greek phrase in verse 1, you see it? Confronted is the actual Greek phrase. It's not, it's not what, it, what does it say there in verse 1? They came up to them. The Greek phrase gives a, a feeling of, no, they're, they're, they're in their face. They're confronting them. It indicates that they were hostile from the very start. So number one, what are they mad about? What do you guys think they're mad about? What do they have to be mad about? You know? What do you, what'd you say? Yes, exactly. Boom. There's their powers at stake. So number one, they're immediately bothered when they determined that they were teaching the people in the compound. Why? Well, in Israel, teaching on spiritual matters was not permitted unless the person had been carefully vetted, trained, and approved by the Jewish leaders. And teaching in the temple was the highest honor of all teachers. So you're not just going to willy-nilly this fisherman named Peter. I don't care if you knew Jesus. You're not licensed. So get out of here. And the that was a high honest honor. Remember in those days before he was crucified, Jesus, Jesus encountered still uh, opposition when he taught in the temple, just like Peter is today. The temple guards come around and they go, you get out of here. You don't have a license. And so the leaders challenged Jesus repeatedly. And, and they, they challenged him about what? The same thing that they're talking to Peter about. And that is substantiate your authority. Let that sink in for a second. That's what Satan will do. He will ask, what gives you the authority to speak about such things? Because we didn't give you the authority. Therefore, we can't find you in our records. Therefore, what do you think you're doing? So then second, what are they mad about? Second, the Sadducees, Sadducee, were bothered to hear Peter and John teaching about that terrible doctrine of resurrection. You may remember that the Sadducees had determined for themselves that resurrection was a myth. But you hear someone teaching resurrection, they're going to get ticked. You can imagine. It was even worse that Peter declared that Jesus was resurrected. They just killed him. They just murdered him. They saw his dead body getting hauled off. So you're not going to tell me that he's resurrected. So they jump into action. Consider the dangerous trap that existed in Peter's day. On the other hand, teaching on spiritual matters was the only it was only allowed by teachers who had been approved by those existing leaders, right? So those new teachers could only teach what was approved by the men, even if that teaching was in conflict with the scriptures. Can I say that again? 
It didn't matter if it was approved by Scripture. It was approved by men was the requirement. Do you see the loophole? This is why Jesus condemned the leaders in his day when he said in Matthew 15, 7, he says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. Yep, he knew, he said it. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines and precepts of men. They were teaching precepts of men as if they were doctrines. That it is as if they were God's truth. Sound familiar to today? And since they also controlled who could teach, you see a problem? They ensure that the truth would remain suppressed. Do I even need to make the parallel to today? <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy today. Men today are often required to complete certain uh, sanctioning or ordination requirements before they may teach God's word. And don't get me wrong; I don't want to be a little hasty here. There's nothing wrong with a good teaching or a good uh, um, college course. Heck, you guys are listening to me pontificate about teaching. But let me just throw this out. Those sanctioning bodies insist that their graduates adhere to certain prescribed views and doctrines. This pattern explains why we have denominations and church bodies. Can I just say, I've been a part of, in Omaha, I've probably, in here in Omaha, Nebraska, I've been, I've personally known and been a part of uh, approximately six church splits. Splits. To me, that's embarrassing. To me, it's dishonoring. That's, I'll leave my own personal opinions, but I want you to think about why we have denominations. I want you to think about where this line is drawn as a common religion. Where do we get our distinctions? Could it be that it's a very similar pattern to what existed in the first century in the pharisaical Jewish rabbinical law? We act like Sadducees seeking people who will teach what we already believe. Hmm. And if they teach differently, it's proof that you're not qualified. We'll just, let, we'll just ask you right out the door, sir. Go ahead. Just go ahead and leave. Let me just, let me just throw this out. Did you know that in, in Paul, Paul's day, he actually wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, that this would happen? That we would accumulate for ourselves teachers who itch our ears. In other words, what that means is, tell us what we already believe. Hmm. Obviously, some people are very unqualified to teach. Don't get me wrong. But the standard for whether someone should or shouldn't teach is not based upon a college. It's not based upon a denomination. It's provided in Scripture. And that's easy for me to say, isn't it? But those qualifications don't include, I'm just saying, 
The qualifications for somebody teaching God's word, as we see in view here, I want to take a second to talk about this because this is super important. What are the qualifications? Well, I'll tell you something. It's certainly not what seminary you went to. It's certainly not where, who's your daddy. It's certainly not your last name. And it's certainly not how many followers you got on Instagram. And it's certainly not how famous you are. It's two things. Character and maturity. Ultimately, a person's teaching is to be evaluated against the light of Scripture. That's it. There is no other rubric. Not against denominational creeds. I could tell you stories about my father, who was a dad, who, my dad, who was a pastor in different denominations, and he has horror stories about just how off some of these meetings were that he attended, where they literally placed the Bible to the side. I mean, I'm not being legalistic here. I'm saying there's an epidemic of man principles versus Holy Spirit, Scripture, God-breathed truth. So this character of, and maturity thing needs to be in the light versus what's on your degree. That's all I'm saying. And I guess here's my thing. I, I definitely don't want you to back off of, teach, uh, of learning God's Word, but where do you find your rubric? So let's get back to the test, the, the, the text. These temple guards take Peter and John into custody. The text says that they were kept probably in a room inside of the temple, but since it's illegal under Jewish law to hold a trial at night, you can't do that. They held them overnight and planned to conduct an inquiry in the morning. So Luke ends verse 4 with a stunning contrast. Do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah. 5,000 men who hear Peter's sermon come to believe in Jesus, even as they're arrested. Interesting. It's hard to imagine how Peter could have stood and spoke in an open courtyard to 5,000 people. I stood in front of 1,000 a th a people one time, and nobody could even hear me in the back. And I didn't have a PA. So I can't imagine how loud this man was and how huge the circumference in the gathering was. They were squished in there like sardines. It's a madhouse much less how they could agree with the message he was saying. Clearly, what we're seeing here, something supernatural. It's a work of Holy Spirit. Do you remember me saying that there's not really a possibility? It's, it's scripture. scriptural, it's not me saying it, that there is only one way to come to Christ through the Holy Spirit. He draws us. Do you see him drawing? I do. Luke's compelling uh, coupling of persecution and growth is a well-known relationship that's been historically the twins in the church history. Persecution, growth. Persecution, growth. I could even say the greatest form of a weak church is fat, happy, and dumb. Am I right? When we're all fat and sassy, living life, 
everything's good. All of our businesses are good. Our, our kids are all getting trained in all the right ways and they're doing everything right. And nobody's bothering us. Man, I got to be honest, historically, that's when the church is the weakest. That's when the gospel goes, nothing. And growth under persecution is particularly good growth as it filters false confessors. Don't get all downhearted if you go through some hard times in your faith. Neither should you get downhearted if you go through hard times at your church. Because guess what? It's God's litmus test on whether or not there's a church full of false confessors sitting in your pews. It produces particularly strong and mature believers going through hard times. Uh, guys, i got to be honest. I'm just like your, you. I'm just like everybody else. I don't like pain, y'all. I like my cozy chair. I like my cup of coffee. I have my little rhythms. But if God comes and says, hey, I'm going to go ahead and throw you in jail now, I have to believe that there is a greater work, and I have to submit to that as a, as a believer of Christ. And let me get to this, something really important. There's something that Satan does in the church. There's three things I want you to write down historically to destroy the church. Since the beginning of the church, he does this. Number one, he prosecutes from without. Without. Number one. Number two, he, prosec he, 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 uh, he instills hypocrisy from within. And number three, he distracts with false confessors and false teachers. If one doesn't work, he'll go two. If two doesn't work, he'll go three. If three doesn't work, he'll go one, and then two, and then three, and then four, and then five, and six. Sorry. I'm just saying, this is his MO for thousands of years, since the birth of, of the day of Pentecost. I mean, guys, he wants to break us from within. He wants to break us from without. And then from the inside, he wants to distract us, perhaps outside and inside. He wants to distract us with false doctrines. So where do you go to find the truth? What do, you, what do you do when you hear somebody say something wrong? Let me ask you guys something. This is maybe making you feel uncomfortable, but what if I said to you guys today that the Trinity, for example, is a hoax? What if I said that Jesus wasn't necessarily the Son of God? He was a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but he was more related to an ascended master, and he's more into transcendental meditation. And, and maybe, maybe the, Oprah has this whole thing figure it out after all. Let me ask you guys, would you come back next week? Thank you, Steve, for shaking your head yes. I would pray to God that you would come next week. Why? Because I need you to disagree. You see that? You don't do the church a favor by leaving when you hear something that you don't believe. You do the church a favor when you say something in love. Yeah, and, and you ready to be the pig nose? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yes, thanks, Nate. Thanks for throwing me a bone. Maybe I've been listening to a bad podcast or something. I mean, who knows? 
But you would come up to me gently afterwards and say, Ben, I got to have a word with you, bro. Like, hey, what, what was that Oprah stuff? Show me something where you got that, right? But no, you know what we do? We leave. That's our new thing. I'm not going to be associated with this. And we're gone. Peter and John give us a very potent illustration today as a different mode of operation inside today's body of Christ. So they're, they're kept up in this temple. Let's get back to the text. And there are they're they're 5,000 people come to know Christ, and they're agreeing with their message. But this persecution thing, we got to talk about that, right? And whenever the enemy decides to strike out at the church through persecution, the Spirit inevitably uses the occasion to bring growth and pruning. The early church saw this pattern under Jewish persecution, Roman persecution, Roman Catholic persecution during the Reformation. Today, it continues in many oppressed nations. We have no, we have no clue what's going on out there. 90% of the population oppressed. They don't even know where their next meal is coming from. So let's get back to the text real quick on verse four, or chapter 4, verse 5 through 7. Let's talk about what happens the next day. 5, 6, and 7. Somebody shout it out. Anybody? On the, on the next day, their ruling elders described gathered together in Jerusalem with the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Oh, the remarkable group. This is a remarkable group, an astonishing group of authorities. They're assembled to interrogate these two men. We have their entire Sanhedrin standing there. We got the entire ruling counts of Israel, all the Sadducees, all the Pharisees, and the high priests, and the family of the high priest. Remember, there were two high priests at this time, since I didn't tell you guys this, but here's a little history. The Romans decided to remove the true high priest and place his son-in-law in, in that position. Ticked them off, ticked the Jews off. But both are present in this little occasion. Father-in-law, son-in-law, both standing there. Two-headed dragon. <laughs> This is an unusually powerful gathering for two fishermen. They don't, they're not rabbis. They're just two guys with no credentials. Right in the target bullseye. The focus of their inquiry on the central concern issued to the authorities is what? Somebody tell me, what is the issue? What's the focus on their, on their issue? It's their offense. What's the offense? On what authority? But what was the action? They, they the, the healing. Somebody got healed. Right. Right. The offense is somebody got healed. On their campus, on their, on their, uh, in, their in their little show. So... The, the healing is done. They weren't as much interested in the fact that these men were teaching and proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, guys. Those claims by themselves posted no threat. The guy's dead. To them, he's dead. 
They were disturbed, however, by a powerful miracle that accompanied the teaching. Ha! We got to silence this. And by this fact, we can understand why the Lord chose to award those powers to these powers to the apostles, a unique endowment, may I add. The ability to perform these miracles was a key component to gaining the attention of both the crowds and the leaders of Israel. It's relatively easy, and I might say we're all guilty of this, to dismiss an unsubstantiated claim that they're crazy. We do that all the time, right? Saw a UFO the other day. Yeah, you're crazy. Unsubstantiated. It's another thing altogether to dismiss a healing that cannot be denied. What am I talking about? <laughs> how, how can you deny a man standing there who's been laying on the ground for 40 years? Notice the questions they asked the apostles. They want to know where their power came from to perform the healing. Tells us a lot about what's going on in the inside of their brain, doesn't it? They don't care about anything but what Steve said, power. This is so similar to the question asked by the blind man in John 9 after Jesus healed him. They asked the blind man the origins of Jesus' power. So, uh, so you, got, you can see now. Tell me, where, where did you get all that power? And he made fun of them. He sarcastically mocks the leaders because the answer was so obvious to him and everyone else. It's God. It's, it's God. Yet the leaders acted as if the answer was a, mis a mystery because they couldn't bring themselves to admit that Jesus came from God. Their personal and political interests forced them to pretend that they were ignorant and to deny the obvious. Woo, that's some conflicting, that's some concerning stuff right there. Here as well, the men asked about the name or power behind their healing. So, though the answer would have been obvious. Rather than mocking them, Peter's way more refined, and he gives them the point-blank, may I say, butt-naked, honest truth. What's he say? I'll read it. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, <laughs> said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man... As to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, <laughs> by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, check this out, he is the stone which was rejected by you, verse 11, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, but there is one, no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Psalm 118, 22. Guys, he's, he's, you see that in your Bible? Do you see it in caps? Do you see it there? That's Psalm 118, 22. He's quoting Psalm 118, 22 to the Jewish officials. This fisherman. This is Peter's third sermon in, a, in, in these chapters. It's clear at this point that Peter's become God's instrument, doesn't it? 
during these early days of the church to speak on behalf of the Lord to Israel, the nation of Israel. And like prior sermons, Peter speaks under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I assume that Luke makes this point that Peter's speech is under control of the Holy Spirit to remind Theophilus, the recipient of the commissioned work of this book, of something Luke wrote in the gospel in chapter 12, 11, and 12. Let me read it to you. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And to the leaders of Israel, Peter, speaking under the Spirit's control, declares that Jesus is the one doing the work of the healing. That's got to get them excited. And Peter, Peter's not so diplomatic in how he reminds the leaders that they were the ones that murdered the Lord. This is a remarkably bold statement, brought only about, may I suggest, by the Spirit of God. I couldn't have said that in front of all those murderers. Could you? Peter had good reason to fear for his life, but the Spirit didn't allow Peter to focus on his own safety. Hello! This is exactly how all, are, how all Christians are called to live without regard for your personal needs. Can I just say that with so much grace? We serve a master. Oh, do your flesh, does your flesh cringe when I say that? I hope it does. But I bet the spirit that lives inside you is saying yes to what I just said. If not, repent and be baptized. <laughs> Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one you want. And in a come in a in this comment that must have particularly angered the Sadducees, Peter repeated his claim of Jesus' resurrection just to kind of stir him up. It was the name of Jesus who healed this man standing before you lame, Peter says. Obviously, this has taken the lame man into custody. They have taken this man into custody, too. You notice that? They're, gonna, they're like, hey, we're going to take you to jail, too. You're complicit in all this. How would you like to just be healed of, of using your legs for the first time in 40 years only to be thrown in a cell? Can you imagine he was like sitting there like running around? I can I can walk in the cell now. I mean, he he wanted to go run, you know. Peter quotes from Psalm 118:22 that Jesus would be the most important stone in the building God is building in Israel. This is some deep stuff here. So let me explain. Why did he even say this? Well, we see this verse today as a reference to the stone that starts building, that starts a building, meaning the church. May I suggest that that's incorrect? Yeah. But its full meaning in that context of Psalm 118, 22, I want you to go read that today, the whole chapter. The context is that, in specifically in 22, speaks of a regeneration of Israel in a coming thousand-year reign, kingdom, I don't want to dice my words, check my stuff. Check my facts. 
It's a regeneration of Israel. So Peter is again declaring that the name of Jesus is the one rejected by Israel's builders. The builders? Pharisees. Judicial Pharisees, Sadducees, the whole temple grounds. The builders have rejected the cornerstone that is actually going to be the propping up the, the right angle, the perfect level for their promise to come. They rejected and stumbled over that stone. That must form the foundations for the future Israel that leaders say that they wanted today. They stumbled over it. They didn't recognize it. They were offended by it. It's not glorious enough. It wasn't who they thought he would be. They were confounded by the cornerstone. Peter said this to them. Peter ends his short answer with succinct presentation of the gospel. The need to believe in the name of Jesus. In response to Peter's defense, the council makes its own observations. I'm going to go ahead and read because of time, 13 through 17. Follow along. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, there it is, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. <laughs> I wish people would say that about me. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Number one, the council made observations of Peter and John themselves. They were uneducated. They were untrained. Blue-collar workers. No threat. They recognized them to have been Jesus' disciples, which was not a particular compliment. In their attempts to explain the unexplainable, the leadership first considered that these men have not might have a power that they have on their own. They had spoken eloquently with the authorities and knowledge of Scripture, so it must be something, and yet they were uneducated, untrained by any men. They were, un, they, were, they were the acquaintance of a convicted, murdered criminal. So what, what kind of credentials do you think preceded their, their statements? And yet they were trained by the Holy Spirit. And so they displayed power and knowledge out of keeping with their station in life. This is precisely the way Christ wants us to be seen among the world. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're hearing me. 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says this, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that, we are, that are strong, and the base things of the world that are despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. Secondly, the council inspected the man who claimed the healing. If they couldn't explain the healing by finding power in John and Peter, Peter, perhaps they could discredit the healing itself. But they had nothing that they could say. How is that possible? It's because the man standing there. I love that, how it says that. The text says, he was standing before them. I mean, how do you deny that? He was clearly walking. 
And since he was present at the temple, er, temple every day for many years, there was no denying that he has previously been lame. Now we can seize God's purpose in leaving this man in a handicapped state for so many years. Can I encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you are in a handicapped state, not in comfort, begging for your life, not loving what's going on, be encouraged. I'll leave it right there. It becomes further proof and validation of the Lord's miracle through Peter. Had the man only appeared a short time earlier in the, in the temple, the leadership would have wrote it off. God may choose to leave us in a debilitated state for his own glory, which is his only right as God. I'm saying that from my heart to yours. And I'm praying that the Lord would understand, would minister to you right now if that's you. But after 40 years, it's hard to keep that focus. After dismissing Peter and John, the men confer and discuss what to tell the people. The people of Israel took their spiritual direction from these men, and whatever these men told these people was accepted largely without any debate. They said, jump off a cliff. They'd say, okay. Notice they aren't looking for the truth. They're not. They are looking for a way to explain away the truth. They are. In verse 16, they says what? What does it say? Verse 16. What shall we do? We cannot deny it. What's that mean? They want to deny it, but they cannot. They want to deny it because its existence is a threat to their power. How about the existence of the Lord's truth in your life? Would you like to deny it? So, what do they do? They simply intimidate Peter and John and forbid them from speaking to anyone else in, about what happened. Specifically, they didn't want Peter and John to speak in his name. You notice they didn't even say the name of Jesus. They didn't even want to utter his name. It's disgusting. It's terrible. Here's an insight to the way the enemy tries to stop the message of the gospel from spreading. Though he tries to distort and incriminate the message of the messenger, they, those tactics ultimately fail. The message is the word of God. And the messengers go out with the power of God. They don't associate... It, here, here's a, uh, it's, a, it's a situation with understanding where the power comes from. It doesn't come from a man. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And that's what Luke's trying to show us today, is that we can't be silent. Let me, let me go on, and I'm almost done. Going to a seminary doesn't qualify you, only the Holy Spirit does. Okay, occasionally the enemy will succeed in distorting the gospel and produce false versions, which we, many of us are aware of. And occasionally he will discredit messengers who fall into temptation. But usually the enemy is reduced to persecuting and intimidating the church, hoping that the halt of the spread of the gospel message will occur. The leaders communicated their decision to Peter and John in Acts 18, where we go, 18 and 20. 18, and when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, to you rather than to God, you be the judge, if, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Let's finish up with this concept. The leadership, they communicated their decision to Peter and John. 
But the apostles respond in a rhetorical question, just like Jesus used to do. Is it right to obey God or men? By the way, when you're being interrogated, try that. I don't know if you've ever been interrogated by the, the authorities of the government about your Christian faith, but instead of fighting with them, ask a question. It's an interesting thing. Peter knew these leaders would understand the answer to the question was always to obey God. So Peter boldly tells the leaders he wouldn't obey their command. He, he reason is that they couldn't stop speaking about what they have seen and heard, y'all. Why couldn't they stop? Because Peter couldn't control himself because he was be used as a puppet for the by the Holy Spirit? No. Be, be, because believers are called to be witnesses of the gospel. Let me, let me tell you guys, you know, what does witness mean? Tell, tell me what your street version, just tell me what you think witness means. Confessing the truth. Man, Steve gets a gold star too. Saying whether or not you saw something. Good. It's like a judicial thing. Yeah. I'm a witness. I'm willing to, to, to speak, show. right? I'm not going to just see it and be silent. I'm going to see it and speak about it. That's not how our culture views the word witness today, does it? Much like a Husker game. You know, I was around when the when the, when the, you know Scott Frost was a quarterback and all those amazing players back in the championships. Nebraska witnessed all of those players rise our team, raise our team to glory. That's not the same use as witness in Scripture. Witnessing is being willing to speak. Luke 24, 20, uh, 24, 45 says, Then we, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, uh, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You, verse 48, are witnesses of these things. That's, that's the proper use of that term. A witness is someone who testifies about something, not a, specu uh, not a spect spectating sport. A witness is someone who testifies. It's the role of a speaking person after observing. Peter and John say they can't stop speaking because they were made witnesses, speaking of things they simply saw. And all of us are commanded by Jesus to do the same thing. Witnesses which means we are commanded to be vocal, to share what we know and understand about Jesus. And if we obey men who call us to be silent, we are disobeying the, the God who has instructed us to be witnesses. It's that simple. And I'm sorry that there is a chance that you might be discomforted, that you might be placed inside the target, you might be the Peter and John in this situation. You might have your back exposed. Your comforts in life might be stolen from you. 
I just want to give you this food for thought today in, in the form of some reflection questions, and then we'll pray. And oh man, we're almost dead on time. Number one, if you guys want to see your reflection questions there, just some things that I jotted down. When I was wrong about something, where do I go to find truth? Am I willing to listen to teaching I don't agree with? <laughs> and then what do you do? How do you respond? You just leave? <laughs> Am I, number three, am I currently experiencing persecution in some form or fashion, and how do I respond typically? Four, do my physical needs or comfort come first? I, I, another way of saying that is saving my skin while I share the gospel. It does not compute. It is. It's paradoxical, right? Last but not least, am I a witness? By biblical definition, you observed the moment you placed your faith in Christ, Jesus himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, drew you, he saved you, he redeemed you, he's sanctifying you to this day. You've observed. Now will you speak? Will you simply tell others? Let's pray. Jesus, what an awesome God you are to give us the insights that you do, the truth. I do. I, I pray right now that we would we would under, we'd walk out of here with a greater understanding of where to prioritize our our comforts and our our personal our personal hemisphere that we put out so nobody bothers us. Oh Lord, I pray that I don't walk by one individual where your spirit's saying, stop, say something. Lord, I pray that I would obey, and I wouldn't fall prey to saving my own skin all the time. I wouldn't fall prey to leadership of the world saying, be silent. Do not speak in the name of Jesus. Do not speak about him. Don't mention his name. Just be cool. Lord, I just want to confess the days I have the moments that I gave up, and I would love another shot. Oh, Lord, I'd love for us to have another shot at sharing your eternal truth message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation, the gospel of the kingdom, your amazing story. We all have lots to think about as we leave this place, but it's such an honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.